Kisat Podcast Network. Lions and Tigers and Bears MI is brought to you through a collaboration between the Mountain Plains, ATTC, and NFARTEC. In episode 15, Paul and Amy welcome guests and author of Motivational Interviewing in Groups, Dr. Karen Ingersoll. For episode resources, links to episodes, contact us, and other information, please visit the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at mtplainsattc.org forward slash podcast. and Tigers and Bears, MI, an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. And we've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI we're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Hey, Paul. Hi, Amy. How are you today? Super excited. Me too. I am so happy we have this particularly special guest with us today. I'm glad Billy Joe Smith isn't here. Not that I don't love her, but she'd call <laughs> me a geek because I said, hey, look, there's Dr. Ingersoll. <laughs> she goes, you're such a geek. Are you going to have her sign your book? And I forgot to bring my book. I was gonna. <laughs> well, we've already let the cat slightly out of the bag <laughs> by saying that our, our very special guest, Dr. Karen Ingersoll, is here with us today. And she's co-author of a book a particular topic that so many people are asking about these days about the use of motivational interviewing in group settings. Mm. And again, I I can't thank Karen and her co-author, Dr. Chris Wagner, for this contribution to the field of group work as well as motivational interviewing. And maybe uh, without further ado, it would be nice to give Karen the opportunity to introduce herself, unless there's anything you'd like to say in way of welcoming as well, Amy. Oh, I, I, I would just add that we've had the pleasure to work with Drs. Ingersoll and Wagner as well, and we can talk about that when we dive into the material. But yes, let's let's say hello to Karen. Well, hi, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to be here with Amy and Paul. And as they've mentioned, we had a couple of delightful experiences doing some online training during the pandemic together, um, really focusing on this topic of MI in groups. And um, let me first back up and just sort of say who I am and and why I'm interested in this and that kind of thing. So um, as uh, they said, I'm Dr. Karen Ingersoll. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And I've been working here for quite a while. Before that, I worked at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is where I met Dr. Wagner when we were both, um, he was a fellow and I was just a year post fellowship in my first faculty job. And um, way back then, um, we started talking about working together. So I'll, I'll circle back to that. But um, in my early work, when I was a, a postdoctoral fellow, and then in my early faculty uh, work, I was really interested in women and addiction. And that was one of my central focuses. And um, I had an opportunity for several years to work with an innovative uh, center on perinatal addiction, which was a, a residential and uh, day treatment facility for women who were either pregnant or recently postpartum, who were uh, in that era, this was the crack cocaine epidemic in Richmond, Virginia. And we did a lot of group work at uh, this center. And I had done a little bit of group work in my uh, psychology training program, but really I, I credit this experience at the perinatal center as giving me 
um, really my feet under me in terms of learning how to do things in groups like relapse prevention and um, life skills training. And, um, you know, around that time, I picked up a copy when I went to a conference of a little tiny book, thin book by Bill Miller, um, you know, called Motivational Interviewing. And, um, you know, it was one of those things that I just picked up on a conference table and I said, oh, this looks interesting. And I brought it home and read it like in a night and I was hooked. And I was like, oh my goodness, this book is articulating so many of the things that I had not really articulated in the way he did, but that were active in the groups that I was running and in the individual work I was doing with patients in this perinatal center. And so I started thinking about, gee, you know, I wonder if, even back then, I wonder if we could do this kind of thing in some of those groups. So way back when, um, you know, I started doing some MI, uh, I would say MI moves uh, within those groups and the patients loved it. The patients responded so well. And so I thought, okay, you know, let's let's keep this going. Uh, and that was around the time where I met Chris Wagner um, and he was working with us on um, the liver transplant program at VCU, and he was asked to do this group for men who were being considered for liver transplant, but their their providers thought they were still drinking and were concerned about that. And so at that time, I gave him my copy of that little first motivational interviewing book, and I think he read it in one weekend and, and again, like me, thought, oh, this has so many things I could do in this group. And so he started trying it with this group of men with liver transplant needs. Um, so, you know, that was sort of the origin of what we now would call motivational interviewing groups um, way back when. I love that story. It's never on our resumes. I saw that you focused on women's care in your history and loved hearing the intersection of you didn't pick up the group psychotherapy by Irwin Gollum. That's what I thought you were going to say, which is a big book, but you picked up MI. And it's interesting. It was around the same time that I was exposed to motivational interviewing and found the same reaction. Like, dang, this is a great way to talk to people. And that's not what I was experiencing in my work in addiction treatment. You know, Karen, the thing that I really discovered about you that I didn't know before is that you're obviously a faster reader than Chris because <laughs> you read the book in an evening and it took him a weekend. Well, I don't know how fast he reads. Maybe he's more thorough than I am. <laughs> Good uh, redirect. I, I have been accused of being a fast reader in my life. So. But, but I think the thing about it is, you know, when you are connected to MI, uh, when you learn MI, at least for mm. those of us who really have taken to it, um, you know, it's sort of all or nothing, right? Mm. Uh, people jump into it feet first if it fits their personality, their style, their hopes for their work. Mm. Um, and so for me, it, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, oh, my gosh, where have you been all my life, <laughs> all my early professional life? So, you know, really from that time on, um, you know, I feel like my practice shifted dramatically and became much more uh, patient centered and much more strategic. And, um, you know, I think I hope at least useful for the patients that I was working with back then. Mm. You know, I was thinking, go ahead, Paul. No, I was just going to say, I'm wondering, Karen, if I could ask you a follow-up question in regard to, and I, I really uh, enjoyed the way you referred to this, because I imagine, you know, after Chris took that weekend to read that little book, um, <laughs> that he also kind of integrated MI moves into the group. And I'm wondering if if you could shed a little bit of light on what those kind of moves were that you integrated and that Chris really started to integrate, because basically your practice in your book probably grew out of that original experience of that integration. So I'm wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about what some of those early moves were and what you see as the benefit of bringing an MI consistent approach into a group format. 
Sure, sure. So, you know, you mentioned Yalom, right? And all of us probably were trained, who do group work, were trained, um, you know, using that sort of Bible of group work. Um, and I also did a lot of reading of Rogers and, and some, some of his encounter group work and, um, you know, other existential humanistic um, writers, uh, you know, influenced me early on. And so when I read Bill Miller's book, um, I was just about to, not only was I working with the perinatal center, but I was also working with people living with HIV. And, um, you know, I thought, gee, in some of these, we were calling them support groups for people with HIV. In some of these support groups, I bet I could use some of these, um, what I considered humanistic uh, concepts and the specific strategies I, I brought in more heavily at that point um, was reflecting um, not only the individual uh, comments of group members and, and their, you know, sort of hopes or wishes or frustrations. I tried to do a really good job of reflecting those, um, knowing what we know now about change talk and directional reflection and things like that. I probably wasn't doing it well back then, but, um, you know, I added a lot more reflect, reflective practice, I would say, in my groups. And what I found that that created was uh, people kind of perked up and talked more and went deeper and they mm. seemed to feel safer to, to talk in a slightly different way than they had been talking previous to my trying to do some motivational interviewing moves in the group. Right. So I felt like, um, the, the use of specifically reflective listening. And later I realized sometimes reflecting like goals or momentum or aspects of change talk it felt like it made the group better it it got the other group members excited for each other i saw this kindling effect where somebody would start to talk about um you know living in a more healthy way for example while living with hiv or struggling with the medical care that we had in place at that time and and other people would jump in with helpful suggestions instead of the, the old me too, woe is me kind of, you know, jumping mm. in. Um, so I felt like I was onto something. Mm. And Chris and I talked, you know, at that time about his experience with these men facing liver transplant uh, who were most of them, you know, lifelong drinkers. And they really, you know, it was life or death for them. And this was also the era of HIV care where it was often life or death. And people were, there was always a potential that members of the group were going to die. Um, and so I was a little fearful back then as a, a young clinician of how do I face that and how do I help people face that? And one day I had a very powerful experience in one of the HIV support groups and you know, I asked something, an open question um, about, you know, what are your fears? And one person in the group started talking about all the people they'd lost. And am I going to go that way too? Mm. And right then we got so much deeper and so much um, more real than any session probably I'd had to date at that point. And I just thought, okay, I've got to hang on um, and reflect and be respectful of the process and trust the process. The group had already been well aligned. I had to trust that they would take care of each other, that they would be able to cope with this, and that I was just there to kind of keep the reflection happening um, so that they could use the group for what they needed it. And, and it was a very successful group. Um, overall, that was a time limited group. I think we had 12, 12 sessions, um, but that really changed my mind completely about uh, how I wanted to do groups in the future. And it definitely involved integrating a lot of these MI concepts that I was reading about in Bill's first book. You know, little did you know you were embarking on probably the third edition way back then. What I heard you talk about was engaging and creating a safe environment by using that reflective practice and then getting into focusing and focusing on their goals and what they wanted to do versus 
staying in the problem solving, which some of us helpers uh, are trained to do. We assess, we have a problem and we're going to try to help fix it. And we're going to focus on those problems. And you shifted it uh, very early on in your career. And that's what I'm hearing is the engaging piece and then the focusing in a group session. What a great story. Yeah. Uh, You know, I want to underline two things that you said, Karen, because, you know, folks hopefully listen to these podcast conversations as a means of, you know, integrating this into their work or allowing their work to be influenced by these particular ideas. And, you know, I found it very powerful when you said, you know, I reflected back what individuals were saying, as well as what the group was saying. So it's really that that reflection on two levels that you, you're able to reflect an individual and communicate to that one individual, I'm, I'm really working to understand you, and you're able to reflect back the group as a whole, the theme that the group is experiencing, and, and the power of that. And I, again, I could almost feel it when you said it allowed everybody to go deeper, and they and then they could do their work while you helped facilitate them doing that work. And again, through the use of an open-ended question. Yeah, exactly. And and I felt like, um, you know, I owed a lot to my earlier readings of Yalom and uh, Rogers and Maslow and, you know, all those existential humanistic thinkers, because in the case of the HIV group and, and really the liver transplant group too that Chris was running, we were dealing with life and death issues. And... I didn't want to shy away from that. And motivational interviewing skills, at least the reflective listening skills that I was, um, you know, emphasizing back then, um, were helping me to go deeper and help elicit, although I didn't use that term at the time either, elicit from the participants in the group, you know, really their hopes and dreams, not just complaints about the day or the week. I'd certainly seen groups where it was just a bunch of people sitting around complaining, right? That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted, I wanted my work to be useful for people. Um, and so when I stumbled onto MI, picking up that book in a conference in Greensboro, North Carolina, and got so intrigued by it and then took it back home to, to the work I was already doing with groups, it just seemed like such a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Mm. How wonderful to face life or death in the frame of a supportive group environment with, without having to sort of try and look away from either of those kind of daunting experiences. And what an experience of hearing the compassion around that story about not wanting to shy away from it. You said it right there sitting there with them, experiencing it with them and reflecting back to allow them to feel safe and go deeper and have those fears and, and dreams at the same time. Right. Because, you know, even though at that time, the outlook for most of those folks was kind of dire, we didn't have the good medicines yet. Often people were already quite sick. Um, you know, they still had hopes and dreams about their lives, right? And they still had things they wanted to do for their friends, their family, their network of people they cared about. They wanted, um, even in one case, a fellow who's further along, wanted to plan a good death and plan something that would be meaningful for his his group of people who supported him. Um, and that was really something we, we talked about in the group and the other group members, you could tell it hit them pretty hard because some of them may have, may have been in the same situation or they feared that same situation. And yet um, I found that some of the most meaningful work I was doing back then because it was so real and people were willing to share the, the fear of death, the fear of a life cut short, um, you know, the fear still of stigma. You know, this was an era where sometimes, especially gay men were being attacked 
um, you know, and, and, and targeted by people full of hate. Um, you know, so, so there are so many real things on their plate that I couldn't help but rise to that level and try to help them live that truth. You know, I'm reminded, Karen, of the opportunity that I first got to work with you and Chris and Amy together in the eight session, I think at first, and then six session training that we did about motivational interviewing in groups. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, given that experience, and I remember this coming up in the group, uh, as well as it, it basically comes up in trainings all the time, that folks... Uh, often will enter into a conversation of, well, I do motivational interviewing already. So it's not really going to be that big of a stretch for me to be able to do that in a group. And I, I'm wondering sort of what your your thoughts are about that for people who are listening, who who might be thinking that like, well, I do MI already. And, you know, it's it can't be that big of a stretch. What would your suggestion or your thoughts be about if one wants to effectively and intentionally bring in these MI concepts into a group setting, what would you, what would you invite them to consider? Well, this is kind of why we wrote the first edition of the book. Um, because what we found was that a lot of people uh, were embracing MI as an individual therapy um, and a lot of people were also doing groups, but they weren't really considering integrating uh, the two sort of sets of practices. And, and yet Chris and I almost intuitively and separately had both embarked on this journey of immediately applying MI into the groups that we were already working with, right? And so it, it felt like a very natural fit for us once we took that on. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened fairly soon after that was uh, I had started doing some training um, at our local, in Virginia, we have a system called the Community Services Boards, which are the mental health, substance use, um, uh, intellectual disabilities kind of services entities. And they're typically in each county or each locality has its own community services board. And these are public sector treatment centers where people were coming for outpatient and in some cases inpatient work. And, um, and these folks typically were bachelor's level or sometimes master's level um, counselors, uh, frontline people working with difficult caseloads. And so we got a number of requests separately and together to do training. And in that first couple of years of training, I was training like, cognitive behavioral therapy and, um, you know, a little bit on uh, how to do reflective listening without really jumping in feet first training motivational interviewing. And then at some point I started offering motivational interviewing training and people didn't even know what that was. Right. Um, so I, I think I called it something else like effective counseling with your clients or something like that. Um, and then, you know, hoodwink them into actually doing an MI training with me. <laughs> um, but, but we were doing a lot of MI training, Chris and I separately and together around the state of Virginia. And every training we went to, there would be somebody in the group who would say, but can you do this in groups? We do everything in our groups, right? Mm. And so not only did we have that intuition, but, you know, frontline clinicians and counselors were also hungry for that and asking us for it. And, and at that point, our, our, you know, comments would have been something like, well, you know, nobody's really written about that. Um, we're sort of doing it. Uh, you know, I, I think it can be done in groups, right? Our, our lived experience was it could be done in groups. And so at that time in, in the ATTC network, um, Virginia Commonwealth University had one of the early ATTCs mm -hmm. and the director there, Paula Horvatich, who was very visionary and, and influential in, in the spin out of the ATTCs later on, um, she asked us to work with her to help um, you know, integrate MI uh, training around the state and also provided a lot of support for our concepts of MI groups, because what she did was 
um, she uh, sort of commissioned us to write uh, our first manual of MI groups. Hmm. And that was actually published, publicized and published by the ATTC um, at uh, VCU and distributed all over, um, you know, Virginia substance use services. It was specifically motivational counseling for substance use. Um, but it included a lot of group uh, strategies that, that we still use today, although some of them have been refined over time. So that was really our first, that might've been the first thing Chris and I wrote together. Um, I don't know, we might've had a paper or something before that, but, but it was one of the first big projects that we took on together. And that really was the genesis of what eventually became the book that we wrote um, and published in 2012. Well, look at that. We come full circle because that's how Paul and I met through the Addiction Technology Transfer Centers. He's in New York. I was in Pennsylvania and we met related to coding motivational interviewing, actually. Yeah. So at, at, a, at a Mia step training. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Once again, motivational interviewing brings people together. <laughs> <laughs> So there's some things that you wrote in that initial paper, and I'm curious, and you said still use, what are some things that you would offer the listeners uh, that they could take away from that if they didn't have it in their hands? So, so one of the things that um, Chris and I agreed on right away was that, you know, you should not do individual motivational interviewing mini sessions with witnesses and call that a motivational interviewing group. Love right? it. I think that a lot of people were thinking that's what it would be. When we went around and talked to folks, they were surprised to hear the group focus that we had, that, that really we were using MI skills, but working at the group level. So really, even very early on, we had that intuition that, um, you know, we didn't want to do these little rounds of MI. Now it's your turn to talk. We're going to we're going to use MI on you. That's, that's a <laughs> phrase that I used to hear a lot back then. Uh, um, and then go on to the next person and use some more MI on them. You know, that just didn't fit for our styles or what we thought about as we've been doing, you know, MI for a couple of years at that point. And so, you know, the main thing we were trying to teach people was how do you take the MI skills that you might have learned or think you learned um, in individual work and how do you actually apply them at the group level? And that, that's when we started thinking about there are broader themes here that we need to attend to. And um, right now we're working on the second edition of our MI groups book and some of the broader themes are the connection piece. How do you get people connected, right? You guys are familiar with that because we did that training, um, you know, some time ago on that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you build momentum for change at the group level and for individuals within the group? And then how do you keep people moving in a, in a useful direction? So those precepts are still really important components of the book that we're writing now. So, Paul, I, I wonder if you would share with us, you call it, I think, doing case management in groups, similar to what Karen was talking about, doing one-on-one -on -one volley back and forth with individuals. It's more about maybe you could start there and then spread that theme across the group if someone brings something up. What, what are your comments about the doing case management in group? Well, it, it's interesting because I, I think – Karen and Chris's insight, because I think there could be a, a strong temptation with motivational interviewing, because most folks are trained to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks. Mm -hmm. I think there's an inherent trap in that, that could cause the group facilitator to think, okay, well, if I'm going to do MI in a group, I need to do these mini sessions. And again, Karen and Chris's insight into that really speaks to their understanding and their expertise around the group process. And it, I don't know, Karen, if you've had this experience or Amy, if, if you've had it, I have found that most providers are not really trained in group work. Some of them are, but it's very specialized. They often just get thrown into a group setting 
and mm. they're they're trying to figure it out. That's- and and they've been trained as case managers, so they do case management in the group, which is a, a phenomenon that's been around in group work for a long time. And no fault of their own. They haven't None. been trained. Yeah. I was fortunate to take a full three credit hour class just on groups and facilitating groups. And when I got into the field, I saw that case management individual work happening in groups. And certainly by the time I got into the field, we weren't doing co-facilitation anymore. And I was trained to do co-facilitation in groups too. So there mm-hmm. are a lot of folks. That's been my experience and my experience supervising people that many more than not have not, if I said that right, have not been trained formally in how to facilitate if even supervised around doing groups. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that is extraordinary about your book, Karen, um, and I'm looking forward to reading the second edition that you and Chris are writing is that you've taken the four processes or now the four tasks of motivational interviewing. And you've, you, you were talking a moment ago about how to get people connected. Well, what you're really talking about is engagement on a group level and helping people to engage with each other. And then the focusing piece of it, but focusing as a group, as well as the individual. So how everybody buys into that. And again, to me, that's how you can get away from this idea of, well, it's just doing a little mini MI session with what it's because it's not, you're really doing MI with the whole group as an entity. Yes. And, and that also requires that we um, admit to and adjust to some of the challenges of not doing those little mini sessions while others look on, right? In a mini session within a group, you could imagine that um, you could be pulling for change talk and you could you know, work with the person on their own change talk and, and do a little set of that, right? And what we noticed in a group right away, um, you know, certainly during the time we were writing the first edition of the book is, you don't hear as much change talk that's overt in a group as you would in an individual session where that client is the only person whose change you're talking about and whose goals and hopes and dreams you're, you're, you know, working with. Um, But there's a phenomenon of a group where there is sort of this internal change talk process. At least we're hypothesizing this. We don't have a scan of people's brain, but Um, you know, we see the evidence later on in the group where members of a group who are not actively speaking at that time, but if they're well connected to each other, are really paying close attention to each other, even though the changes they might want to make in their own lives are different. Um, Someone will be speaking about a significant change they want to make and the challenges they have and how they want to go about it and why they want to do it. And especially when they get to the why, you see other people lighting up around the room and they've got some thoughts going on that I'm hypothesizing are those meaning change talk kind of things happening inside them. And sure enough, when it gets to be their turn next time in group, whether it's in that session or a future session, you'll hear them reflect on, oh, when Joe said that, it really made me start thinking about you know, my own values and where am I going with my wife and kids and why am I doing this other thing that I really want to stop doing? And, and, you know, why, why do I want to make that change, you know, to protect my family for my future, for, for my hopes and dreams. Right. So we would hear some overt change talk that seemed to have been um, triggered almost by hearing other people talk about their own change but in a group process where there could be some feedback and some volleying back and forth, mm. um, you know, which seems to, to bring the level of energy up for the whole group. And that's the other piece I wanted to talk about that's really different in individual motivational interviewing versus group motivational interviewing, where, you know, in my case, maybe because I'm an extrovert and I tend to be a happy person. I like to have an energetic, flowing conversation mm-hmm. in a group, right? And, um, 
you know, it's not that I can't tolerate any sadness or, or sorrowful moments, but generally I want the energy in the group to be a positive energy that's encouraging, um, where members feel like they can support each other and they expect they, they will be supported, even if they have quite diverse issues. Um, and, you know, that's what I was talking about earlier, this concept of connection. You know, think about why would we even do groups at all? Part of it is because right. as human beings, we crave connection with other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we are a connected uh, organism and we really want those connections in our everyday life, in our family units. You know, that's why we don't all live like hermits, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be together and people even struggling with mental health or substance use or other uh, medical threats and issues in their life. They want to be with other people who they think might understand some of what they're going through and to be able to share both the pain and the joys that they have and to, to not just to receive support, but also people want to give support. So there's a a human longing for connection. Oh, gosh, especially after the pandemic, when we've Mm. in many cases been so isolated Um, and groups can sometimes fill that need. And at the same time, people want to make significant changes in their Mm. lives. And, you know, motivational interviewing gives us the tools to help them. And I think once they're connected well in a group, um, the rest is really relatively easy for us as a facilitator, right? Um, Once we've gotten that nice connection with groups, that's why we don't start out groups with tell us your problem and that's going to be your name going forward. You know, hi, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm Jane. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Tom. I'm, I'm a wife abuser or what, you know, we Uh. don't do any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead, we try to start out groups well. um, And what I mean by that is, start out groups in a way that's going to make people want to get to know each other and want to be supportive to each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Right away, you're going to put an underpinning of trust and support in the group. And that makes everything else you're going to want to do in a motivational interviewing group flow more easily. Mm -hmm. And some of that depends on the facilitator, right? So when you are starting up a group and you're trying to help people with that, very important task of connection, you know, some of the things we try to do um, is, you know, show warmth, have a little bit of lightheartedness, um, you know, a little bit of humor uh, goes a long way. Um, uh, Chris likes to call this the cocktail party effect. Um, <laughs> that may not be the right term if you're having a group for people struggling <laughs> with addiction, right? But but you know what I mean? You want to- Cafe conversation. <laughs> yes. You want to have people walk into a room that seems inviting, where people seem, you know, interested and interesting and they're sharing and, it, oh, that's that's a group of people I want to talk to and join. Right. That's mm-hmm. the effect we want. And that starts really with the group leader. Yes. Um, being warm, inviting, uh, truthful, uh, inclusive, helping modeling back to each other and the modeling. Yes, very much. Yeah. 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 You know, Karen, I, I, I'm really uh, I wish we had so much more time to talk about this because I'm so inspired by a number of things you said. And two of them I really want to underline, which is one when you were talking about the primal need that we have as human beings and how groups in some way meet that, it reminded me of my mentor and my my group professor, Dr. George Getzel, who has sadly passed away, used to repeat and tell us constantly that life is lived in groups. Mm. It's a microcosm, yeah. it, It is, and that's why sometimes when, you know, we're composing a group, if we don't have the right number of people or if we don't have the right composition for that particular group, the group may not take because we're not creating the environment that's necessary for that group. The other, the, just the other thing that I wanted to touch on, and again, I wish we had more time to talk about this, is, and I agree with your hypothesis, and maybe someday we will get brain scans, but uh, the idea that an individual offering change talk within the group setting 
creates the potential for change talk and change exploration in the other members in the group. That's that's such a powerful concept because it, it really reminds us that like being in a safe place where you can really take in what's going on around you can have a very significant impact on you, maybe in that group or the next group. So change talk is can be infectious in a good way to the other people that are in that group setting. Yeah, we've we've literally called it change talk contagion, right? Um, We want that contagion. Yes. You know, part of what happens when people start hearing change talk is they see someone else having a significant moment where they're really making a new commitment to live in a different way that's going to be better for them. And they want some of that. They are inspired, right? And their problem may be completely different. Their lifestyle may be completely different from their peer in the group. But that inspiration gives the whole group more energy, right? Right. The last thing we want to do is have groups start by having everybody introduce themselves, essentially by confessing their worst sins and problems and labeling themselves. And then, you know, you can feel the energy just seeping out of the group and and you as the leader want to run away as well. (laughs) And by the 10th person, everybody's nodding off or wanting to run away. Exactly. And, you know, I want groups not to be literally a party, but I want groups to feel welcoming and warm and accepting so that people can thrive. Um, that's that, those are the conditions that we have to set in place as a group leader using our MI skills and also using our knowledge of this need for connection um, and common humanity. I, I think that takes you a long way to get off to a good start with motivational interviewing groups. Yeah. We've, we've talked about some traps, right? The, the traps that we fall into problem focused instead of solution or goal focused. And this notion of starting the group, which is so powerful. I've been passionate about this. I can imagine if Billy Joe Smith is listening in, she'll laugh because I would go into the group rooms and rip up, rip down the instructions <laughs> that the group leaders would have. And you helped to articulate that for me. I felt like I was Attila the Hun and would go in and like dismantle the group because they, the group leaders, again, with good intention. And I wonder what you think about this, that, well, how do we create cohesiveness? Well, we'll have us all introduce ourselves and find the commonality that, well, my last use date was this, this is my drug of choice, this is, you know, and whatever list the facilitators come up with, I found that to be a trap. And at the same time, I was, maybe Billy Joe doesn't know this, but also sensitive to knowing that a lot of group leaders are following their co-leaders or their mentors and, and didn't have this challenge or understanding why. So that was so powerful to hear that rendition of, you know, you want to welcome people, you want to make it enticing, make it engaging right out of the gate. I agree so much. And, and I think, you know, there are specific ways to make that happen. You know, we're not just, uh, Lucy goosey here. We've got some ideas about how to make it happen. And, you know, instead of introducing oneself by, you know, I'm Karen and I have this problem, um, we often invite people to share something that is either a hobby they really enjoy Mm. or an activity. Maybe it's not really a hobby, but it's an activity in their life that they really enjoy or something they value. Or um, sometimes even as, as big a term as a personal passion, right? Mm. Instead of defining oneself by the problem, right? So you might right. actually have a problem with drinking too much, but you might be a wonderful singer in your choir, mm-hmm. right? And that might be the thing every week that you really look forward to and cherish. And that's the thing we want members talking about at the beginning is, you know, it's not that we're avoiding the problems. What we're doing is we're laying the groundwork for real connections at the human level. 
everyone has some positive things in them and about them. And if we let them share those things at the beginning, then even really diverse group members can say, oh yeah, I have this in common with him and I have that in common with her. And I want to know more about this one, what they said, this is really interesting. And, and all of a sudden they're out of their problem focused mind, which they think, oh, I'm coming to a therapy session. I have to be problem focused. Mm-hmm. And now they're thinking about something more creative. And that's when growth can happen if they're in that creative space. So it's so important to start off well. Um, and really, you know, if I didn't share anything else about our model of MI groups, I would say that is, that's the most important thing. You use your good MI skills and humanity skills to make a strong connection between your members early on so that they can then have the energy to tackle the harder things as you move forward. Yeah. So it's like, guiding, which we talk a lot about in MI, to set that foundation. It's it's not loosey-goosey. There is direction. There's directional conversations going on amongst the members. And continuously, as we talk about this with the four processes or the four tasks, continuously engaging when new members come in, if it's not a closed group, uh, continuously focusing on that engaging process and keeping people connected. Those are the uh, more than a few takeaways. There's so many more in my head that that's going on, but I, I don't want to take over the podcast episode. Well, you know what, what you're capturing though, Amy, is there's such a need for and room for inspiration mm-hmm. um, as a, as a part of getting a, a good group starting um, because you don't want uh, the most likely outcome. If you start out with all the sad, bad, terrible and drama stuff that people have in their lives is, you know, members will start dropping like flies and not attend because they, they either can't deal with hearing all that stuff Mm -hmm. from other people or it too much reminds them of their own stuff that is very challenging and very real. Um, and instead, if you start with that place of inspiration, it's usually kind of surprising. In fact, by the end of a first session of MI group, um, you know, getting going, uh, often there will be somebody in the group who'll say, this is not what I expected. Right. I'm like, come back. (laughs) Which I I take as a victory, right? Yes. Um, Yes. Great. It wasn't what you expected and it's probably not going to be what you expect. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's likely to be helpful down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to misunderstand this in the sense that, you know, we're not, we're not all, we're not saying like, it should all be happy, joyous, and, you know, peppy. And we're not saying that. My understanding is, is that what we're saying is, is establishing engagement that is built on strength and positivity will build a structure within which the group will be able to do any of the work that it needs to do. And that may include some of the stuff that's painful and hard and sad, but that structure, that scaffolding that's built Mm. intentionally through very specific actions, through very specific intention, that positive strength-based, welcoming, open structure is what will build a strong foundation to help people do the work that they need to do. I recall when we were teaching the class with you and Dr. Wagner, and we did our small great breakout groups, we did all these scaffolding, you know, laying the foundation activities. And I remember group members starting to talk about things that were bothering them and how obvious the cohesiveness was, how willing the group members were to help each other. And they came back in subsequent weeks saying they thought about each other and they said it out loud instead of me as the facilitator watching for that and drawing that out. It, it organically happened where they said, hey, how did your week go? You, you were talking about that tough thing last week. And, and then we'd get into our focus and setting the foundation again without ignoring that things happen. Things came up in the group. Of course, they will. They, of course. 
Yeah. And, and so, you know, what I'd probably leave the listeners with is, you know, think about the importance of and how you might get your group connected at the very beginning. Um, because the, the work of the group is not just in that session where you are. It occurs between sessions mm-hmm. um, and individuals will go home and think about what they've heard and what they witnessed and what they were inspired by and what they know they need to work on. So, you know, sort of the next phase, if if we talk further about this on another podcast, um, we can talk about moving from those initial connections and inspiration moves that you do to uh, get the group started off well um, to how do you handle the, the more middle work of the group? And then how do you handle moving towards the end of a group? Closure. That would be great to have other episodes where we dive deeper and hear even more about what's going to happen in the second edition of your book. Well, we're really excited about where we are right now in terms of our thinking about this and our experience with groups over the years. And it's been about a decade since we published that last book. And so it's time for a refresh. Mm. Mm. And Karen, before we say thank you, and hopefully we'll get to speak again uh, in the future, could could you just remind people of the title of the book and any thoughts about when the second edition will be ready? So the the original book was published in 2012, and it's called Motivational Interviewing in Groups. It's published by Guilford Press, easy to find on Amazon or anywhere. Um, uh, We actually were hoping to change the title a bit, but but we're stuck with it. It'll be Motivational Interviewing in Groups again. Um, And I don't know when we'll actually see it in press, maybe end of 2024. we have, uh, we're just getting started with the actual writing. We've got a lot of concepts and a lot of experiences uh, that we've got planned to put in it. And uh, the main difference between it and our previous book is our previous book had a bunch of contributed chapters that made up about half of the book. And this time it's going to be just our stuff. And uh, so the book should be shorter, a little more affordable, um, and a little more, um, uh, I think facilitator centered in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, giving them some really concrete examples of what do I do in this situation? How do I, how do I do that? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're hoping to do a lot of uh, call out boxes and vignettes to help people uh, in their own journey of learning. Mm-hmm. Sounds it feels wonderful. Like, yeah. It feels like I can't wait, especially because it sounds practical. And so has been this conversation there's been at least five or six things that I know I'm taking away from and going outside of here and knowing that they're concrete examples of what things I can do. I hope the listeners feel the same way. I'm sure they they do. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and uh, and also, again, for the opportunity to have worked with you and with Chris Uh, in this process. And uh, just again, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Well, it's been my pleasure too. And yeah, let's do it again. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for listening to episode 15 of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. In episode 16, Paul and Amy discussed the realities of institutional and programmatic expectations while remaining MI consistent. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassette Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassette.org.